This is Audio Gyan and I am your host Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. Today's guest has been dealing with conflicts for quite some time now. I'm pleased to have Avni Sethi with us on Audio Gyan. Avni is a interdisciplinary practitioner with her primary concern lying between culture, memory, space and the body. She conceptualized and designed the conflictorium about which we'll be deep diving uh, as a case study. Her interest lies in exploring the relationship between intimate audience and the performing body. So thank you Avni for giving your time and it's a real pleasure to have you on audio again. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So I've uh, as like I typically I have three formats. Uh, one is regular interview, one is a case study, and one is a biography. Uh, in case study, I generally try and go deep into one problem statement or one solution or one project. Uh, and uh, I thought conflictorium. Uh, I know we spoke offline, and you have spoken a lot about conflictorium. Uh, so I'm going to take. a little philosophical take on on my questions and obviously just try and document in our conversation what what conflictorium is and how did it come to be uh, in the periphery but mainly wanted to pick your brain as to what is conflict and and i wanted to start off with this that what does conflict uh, mean to you uh, where where do conflicts come from yeah. or uh, from my experience i've done uh a 10 day course on vipassana mm. uh and and uh, seems to be that conflict is inherent mm. so i wanted to just like maybe you can start by saying what what does conflict mean to you is there a good conflict and so on yeah actually that's a it's a great place to start because there is a tendency to think that uh, conflict is undesirable but i often want to think of conflict as um, as a sign of actually being alive you know um, as being a robust dynamic mind and body in the world which is at odds with status quo of all kinds um and therefore the question of good conflict bad conflict um meaning i i'd rather receive conflict as a reality of life and therefore not uh, not really apply uh, value judgment to it but i do think that what we may be actually conflating in most cases is conflict and violence um and while conflict is uh, very often at least in our parts of the world um is civilizational question very often it's a question of um, how do we see the world uh, what informs our world how do um, what historicities have shaped our minds um, what privileges have marked um, our, you know our positions and often based on these um, mostly choiceless identities that we inhabit uh we seem to be in conflict now whether that conflict needs to translate itself as violence i'm not sure at all actually 
um, I don't see the need for those two to have this kind of relationship. Um, but unfortunately, um, as much as um, conflict seems to be inherent in us, um, violence is also becoming a habit in us. And I think <laughs> that's how those two become conflated with each other and then it becomes problematic. Hmm. But, I mean, the violence is a manifestation of the conflict or is it because of certain other uh, criteria? Well, I mean, hmm. I think conflict is, um, I think violence is a choice. Um, hmm. You know, there is at any given point in a conflict, we have a choice to dialogue it, to transform it, or to use violence within it. So I am uncomfortable to ascribe any metaphysical or subconscious position to violence. Um, violence is an absolute conscious choice that people make under any circumstance. Now, if it's a subconscious choice, then there's a question of whether it's justified or not, because that's what societies do. They justify certain kinds of violence and sort of um, call out certain kinds of violence as, as good or bad. So we tend to say that if violence is um, for the purpose of self-preservation, then it's justified. Mm. Or... We also say that, oh, if the state uses violence, then it's justified. I wonder who gave that kind of authority to the state, that moral authority to the state to use violence. But anyway, that's a condition in which violence is justified uh, in the world. Not that I'm saying it's okay, but it's justified to some. Hmm. Um, so, so, so there is, uh, I'm... I want to actually separate uh, in our thinking mind these two ideas, um, which seem to have such a deep relationship. Uh, but I think I'm saying they don't have to have that. They don't have to have that umbilical cord attached to them. Mm -hmm. But maybe then you can, we can like just go deeper here that how does this conflict also arrive or or how do we... Do we acknowledge it because if it's inherent or it just, I mean, yeah, it's it's just like a core uh, thing to ask is where do these come from? Well, if 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 I move up and and sorry and and sorry, if I want to just extend that further, is that are these traditionally or or typically together as in like as as a collective or is it an individual one as well? Um, I mean, if we had to just really ground that conversation and say, let's look at South Asia and for a moment, let's look at India and the kind of deep-seated conflict that that Indian society um, has been harboring. Um, there is a... a a structural kind of violence that is inbuilt 
into our society why are the why are the system of caste hmm. and by having this system in place um, one is actually uh, keeping a certain power equation in place now anybody who who challenges that power equation or wants to actually issue conflict saying this power structure is not acceptable to me because it does not include me it does not uh, acknowledge my humanity it does not acknowledge my dignity seemingly a conflict is born um every attempt then to keep the initial power structure in place mm. um every tool every structure every bureaucracy every aesthetic um every ritual is then used to keep that power structure in place now every time there is a status quo and someone wants to challenge that status quo a conflict is born but the hope is that when that power structure is challenged um and 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 this challenging takes time so it it doesn't happen in one lifetime and we know this about even india um it, it happens over many lifetimes but when status quos get challenged some transformation within society happens mm. and therefore conflict is a essential a uh, part of society's evolution that if society has to evolve there will be a conflict within it for it to emerge as a transformed society hmm. but uh, sorry i had like had a sequence of question but now this gives me a segue to one more is that then uh, like there as i mentioned is is it a collective or is it like it's it's sprinkled or it exists within individuals and then there is media or some sort of state or some sort of narrative which is coming in the from the subconscious to the conscious and then it takes that transformation or it need not be championed by someone mm. well i think the sense of conflict exists within individuals also within a single individual as well right Um, whether i want to be this or whether i want to be that between identities between uh, choices that we may make between roads that we may travel so of course the experience of conflict is extremely personal but it perpetuates itself within the public sphere within within large groups within communities um and i and i say this particularly um because today if we have to think of conflict we have to think of identities um how did our identities get shaped um what is the historicity of our identities what kind of privileges are attached and therefore what is the the sort of dire need of keeping intact that privilege at what cost um does that privilege need to be kept intact and what is the extent that people are ready to go to to keep that privilege intact so uh the moment the question of safeguarding community community honor uh, all of these kinds of ideas are concerned it becomes a collective project um it mm. becomes a a collective movement um likewise 
when it is about reclaiming and asserting um, the dignity of a collective identity, uh, then then communities come together, uh, people come together to to claim that, and that's the only way it happens, right? Hmm. Yeah, it's it's so beautiful. I don't know whether what I'm saying is making sense, but there is this word which we say that when you said safeguarding, you are sort of conserving or or confining it, and it's it's I don't know. It's ironic because then even those societies are called conservative, right? It's it's <laughs> there's a there's a paradox there because you're trying to safeguard something and because of that you are also not liberal is it is it making sense well uh i wouldn't go towards uh the liberal just as yet hmm. but I, I i do think that this obsessive uh uh impulse to conserve uh, uh for time to not take its turn um i think there is certainly where where conservatism comes from um so there is a relationship between what is conservative and how much is being conserved um i want meaning i feel like to to think of that as status quoist um grounds it even further in a political scenario where when nothing must change. Hmm. Got it. So I'll I'll change tracks a bit and and uh, maybe uh, ask you on more on the practical front of it, where uh, you are sort of a designer, performer, artist, um, and if we if we narrow down this conflict as a concept to a particular individual, like uh, what according to you is is there a relationship between a performer and the audience because again when when the performer or an artist is is what is he or she trying to do according to me is expressing some inherent conflict which he or she sees in the world so do you see or have you pondered upon this thought that what happens exactly between a performer and an audience because recently i interviewed uh, 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 srijan deshpande and he quoted some one uh, saying that art is half truth where where you present and then leave it to the audience to interpret the other half mm. so i i found that very fascinating and i thought i'll ask you that mm. because at conflictorium you're dealing with both sides uh, uh, you have any thoughts around that what goes around uh, when when a performer is expressing you know um the thing about making art is that we make art exactly in the way we live. Um, we see exactly in the way we eat, or we make art as per as per our own freedoms. If I have so much freedom, I make make so much art. If I only have so much freedom, I make so much art. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but therefore, what I'm trying to say by by this question of attaching this question of living with art making is that 
we possibly can't live a particular kind of life and then make um and then make art that responds to the universal we live particular lives and we make particular art and that's the bottom line so if we live lives that are ridden with conflict or that don't have the choice to actually live without conflict what are we going to make art about we are going to make art about about things that are that are difficult that that need to be questioned that are ridden with conflict um, because that's what lives are but if lives are if lives are easy if they come with um they come with easy access to land and water um then the art that will be made will see a world which has abundant land and water hmm. um so so then here is the question that if artists and audience who don't have the same reality come together in a contract of spectatorship um then what happens because it's not necessary that that those who are making and those who are experience what has been made have have common ground unfortunately more and more we see that those are the kind of silos in which art is made and shown but in an ideal case scenario that shouldn't be true um mm. then what do we have in common to access uh work or access a piece of art i think for performance and because i wear multiple hats you know i put my performance hat on i think a basic unit of sharing space or sharing anything within a performance space is breath um breath becomes the basic unit of exchange and i know this to be true as a as a lived experience as a performer but there are also sort of uh sort of practices like kudiyattam that use use this understanding where if i am as a as a actor or an actress or a dancer using a particular breath if i'm using the breath of fear then you as my audience will start breathing the breath of fear with me mm. that that if i am breathing um sort of uh, the veer ras then you will also breathe it with me and it is really my ability to influence your breath as a performer is really where the performance begins uh beautiful yeah so is there so what is the relationship then between uh audience and performer or for that matter artist and viewer spectator i mean there's a tendency to think that if the audience is not there the art doesn't happen or it doesn't become i'm not sure i i'm not sure of that um i think artists make irrespective of their audiences um mm. but to be seen in the world is what we all want correct to be seen to be heard um and if there is nobody making us feel that 
then then what do we do with what we make hmm. is there have there been or or at what tipping point does it becomes an active participatory kind of a entity in in bringing transformation are there certain milestones because it happens over and over again right so is are there tipping points or people are just making art for art sake and then then there is or a detective art and stuff and then uh, it 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 culminates into some sort of it interferes with politics it interferes with other stuff um you know honestly i do not know of any art that is apolitical hmm. even art that wants to do art for art's sake is not apolitical that then is the politics of that art that it chooses to be quiet when the world is burning that is its politics then <laughs> so there cannot be any art that is apolitical let's get that out of the picture so when we if if we begin there then there is the question of choice um and do i do i make work and and hope for the world uh to see it um and make whatever it wants to make of it or do i make work because i have something to say to the world and the world and the world is influenced by what i say now I, as an artist now it, it feels like it's too much uh, too much burden to put on the back of a single artist <laughs> but what is it we what is the what is the human what is the human condition you know there's a there's a scholar called Ellen uh, Desenaike who made a proposition that you know if we whatever we have not needed in the process of evolution we have left behind hmm. so we didn't need the tail anymore so we don't have the tail anymore if we didn't need art if it was not essential to our beings we would have left it behind but we haven't mm. so it's a absolutely essential to our being it's how we see and frame the world we try very hard not to claim that kind of position for it we really try very hard to tell it that oh the um, it is it is a luxury it is a question of leisure it is a it is a position that comes um after roti kapra makan shiksha not before i often say it comes simultaneously it should come simultaneously but we we, we build as many frameworks for art for it to remain confined to confine to kind of occupy limited power in society that way then the status quo is maintained because art can can build like incredible holes into status quos 
ियली go in some place and watch art but it was part of life being just on that note i think i the natya shastra is an incredibly sexist and casteist text hmm. it hmm. deems who will become untouchable if they do what it claims that as a woman if i have round breasts i can only act as one character if i don't then i can't act as the other so for a text that is revered in this country <clears throat> as a text of great virtue where a lot of learning comes from the flip side of it is it's a text that has never believed in equality of any kind mm. so if if we have to assess at this point classical art or classical dance that takes heavily or is informed heavily uh from the aesthetics of the natya shastra is it going through a quiet crisis in this country mm-hmm. is it yeah. being able to make and sustain and sustain an interest and sustain its relevance within our society it's asking some deep questions at the moment that will never be asked in public fora Mm. is suffering a great sort of um an internal kind of churning saying what are we doing here yeah something to introspect and you nicely put it that in the current time because a lot has to do with time in general uh, which which seems very invisible but it's constantly running so there would be certain context and there would be certain uh uh situational things where things were written uh and like as you mentioned nobody's challenging or nobody's is questioning uh, as we move ahead uh in the time which is also cyclical so yeah many many threads open there uh so what like i understand little bit of where you're coming from so what what is conflictorium and uh like we'll we'll talk about uh, roti kapda uh, sh- makan and shiksha also but if you want to like give us like a quick flavor i'll i'll keep uh, adding show notes uh, links to people can just uh, do their research but in a nutshell like what what is conflictorium and what are you trying to investigate um, is there is there even a framework to investigate conflict <laughs> um so the conflictorium started out as a museum of conflict in amdabad we opened in 2013 so actually it's uh, we are having this conversation at the onset or at us finishing 10 years um awesome. of the museum um but really i think it it was attempting to do two two things um one is as you rightly put it to investigate conflict and really be able to say where do i begin 
to investigate the question of conflict. And unlike how the world wants us to read, it might the world wants us to read history, it wants us to read politics, it wants us to take a position, but we may not be able to do it till the time we investigate the self. Mm. Who am I? Where did I come from? And because of where I come from, what becomes available or what gets taken away from me? If I understand that, I may be able to understand, begin to actually question um, how how these structures are settled. Now, whether it is a question of uh, caste or gender or religion, um, labor, any of these questions, if processed through the lens of the self, as first interrogating the self, then so within the interrogation of the self may lie an interrogation of conflict. So anything at the conflictorium, any installation, any exhibit, any artifact, um, rarely ever points to something outside. Uh, it mostly builds frameworks uh, such that such that we can read ourselves um, and put it out there for us to read, for our own selves to read, and then we'll get somewhere. So the Conflictorium, in a sense, is a series of experiential participatory exhibitions that that moves from the from the personal to the social to the political. Um, it has permanent exhibits and temporary exhibits, and it does does then a whole bunch of performances or conversations. We also have a reading room, partly because we think that we and learn ourselves without reading. Um, mm. And that plays a really important role in what kind of what kind of people we may become. So um, so it's essentially attempting a methodology, a methodology that can inform the self, that can mm. critique, that can also critique the self. And we'll hopefully, and we'll hopefully arrive at at conflict through that route. Hmm. Hmm. But sorry, I'm like taking a tangent here. When you deeply investigate yourself, doesn't it sort of take a spiritual path? Because then it's very tough to stay in the worldly conflicts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. So you sort of yeah. pause or or so reading I who is spirituality available to? You know. Uh, hmm. Spirituality is available to those who have a full stomach. <laughs> um now we hmm. have hmm. we 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 wanted today say in in two thousand and twenty two we want to think of Kabir as a mystic poet. Mm. We don't want to think of him as a anti-caste theorist because the mystic Kabir um, absolves us from a difficult truth while reading very, very kind of uh, 
poetry which is very pointed mm. but the moment we position him as a mystic poet we can feel good about uh, reading kabir it's soothing but the moment we read him as an anti caste poet then um then it's not it's not all feel good then it's a very deep critique of who i am and where i come from so the path of spirituality in this case um depends how we arrived at it if we arrived at it as a mechanism of uh, uh as a mechanism of self preservation then its purpose is different <laughs> if we arrived at it as a through a certain kind of annihilation then maybe there is there is something there to talk about hmm interesting so so does it mean that um when we read kabir as a mystic now even that concept or that that thought or that narrative is coming into a collective consciousness through some elites and that's what we are absorbing or uh, i mean does this conflict typically happen top down or it's it's bottom up uh, even i'm i'm sort of struggling to frame the question correctly but i think uh, we are yeah. building a common vocabulary here, so maybe yeah. you can yeah but that is that has always been a act of the act of the elite because would the the upper caste or the upper class what is it that they have made what is it mm. the upper caste have always raided the labor of those that they have oppressed mm. so it is not surprising at all that the upper caste would um co-opt kabir to be a poet that speaks to them hmm. it's uh, not surprising it's happened it's happened so with so many forms of art um meaning i feel like nitya pillai as a bharatanatyam dancer from the isai velalar community speaks with with so much clarity about her her history and her family's history and where bharatanatyam uh, belongs and where uh, where it has in whose arms and laps it has mm. landed in uh, you know and i think more and more um more and more bahujan people uh, will are are standing up and claiming their claiming their legacies claiming their art claiming um and 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 once those claims are done once those reparations begin to happen uh that then the question will have to be asked what is left what will be left for for um brahmanical society class. to say that this is a labor because the art requires labor also <laughs> it requires mm. time and it requires hands isn't that the isn't that the classic sort of um uh, every work 
that needed hands to be done was relegated to the oppressed classes. Everything that seemingly needed uh, the mind was, uh, was, in fact, laziness was, was <laughs> reserved for, for the upper castes. So we're going, we, we land up on some fairly shaky ground of uh, some metaphysical ideas and nothing left in our hands. You know, um, ask uh, ask ask uh, the upper upper caste masses of our country to be able to grow some apples or to grow some wheat or rice, and then we'll see whether anything will come out of there. Possible. Mm. 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 I think it works mm. similarly with art practice. So yeah, I mean. How do you, like, as you mentioned that you know about yourself and that's where you start investigating. Uh, can you give any example just to uh, help uh, illustrate as to a particular, maybe maybe the memory tree that uh, was there, uh, uh, is there at Conflictorium or any other example which will help understand that how are you trying to, I, I don't know, for a lack of a better word, make it relatable to to a potential audience. Mm. So what you're talking about is the sorry tree, which actually comes yeah. towards the end of your tour in the museum. Um, mm. it's, uh, it's an invitation for audiences to think of this question of the apology. Um, and what does the apology really mean? And it's uh, and it's interesting because it 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 the 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 note that goes along the tree doesn't mark out um, what what you need to apologize for, why you need to apologize. There's no directive there at all. Um, mm. But very often, the kind of conversations that uh, happen there. I mean, of course, there's a range, um, and within that range, there are some who feel. Um, some kind of catharsis in that space, but there are also some people who feel very angry um, because mm. it feels like some, they are being nudged or pushed to apologize for something that they didn't do. Um, and a conversation ensues after that um, because anger needs to come out like then and there. Um, and um, and one has to almost remind them, saying whatever it is that you're angry about is inside of you. There's nothing in this entire building that's telling you that you must apologize to to someone specific or to something mm. specific. It is part of your your internal landscape that is beginning to feel uncomfortable or is beginning to experience, um, uh, is beginning to see... Uh, reality not tainted for a moment for for an hour for 40 minutes um, to somehow see it outside of uh, your social construct mm. or say for example uh, you know the the conflict timeline which is the first exhibit when you enter the museum 
there's something which is basically a timeline starting 1960, which is when the state of Gujarat was formed. And, you know, there's a tendency in Gujarat to think of Gujarat state as a largely peaceful state. Except, and we speak about it so casually, like, except for an aberration, you know, which is 2002, it was an aberration, which is not true, though. It wasn't an aberration. The very existence of the state of Gujarat in 1960 came from a linguistic conflict with Marathi-speaking Bombay presidency. Hmm. So there was a linguistic conflict. And the meaning, the kind of caste-based violence that Gujarat has seen, the kind of religion-based violence that Gujarat has seen before 2002 and continuously after 2002 is mind-boggling. But to walk into a room and to say, my the perception that has been offered to me uh, very neatly, very systematically, such that I become the ignorant person that I am today. There, mm. there is a structure in place that keeps me ignorant. It's not, it's not simply just my individual ignorance. A, there is a whole political, media, familial structure at place that keeps my ignorance intact. Um, if anything within the museum, I think we, we try to somehow expose that structure that's keeping this intact. Interesting. Is it, I, I must come and visit it because I was just going to ask you that are there any nuances that you can share? Because typically, again, people are very uncomfortable with ambiguity generally uh, or or we, we sort of work in binaries, right? Uh, either I'm with you or I'm not with you. There is, uh, and this happens with me typically because if I take the current government stand uh, in, in whatever WhatsApp groups or something, uh, then people assume that, yes, you are pro. And okay. if I counter, then, okay, you are anti. Right, mm -hmm. so there is there are these binaries. There's nothing in between. Uh, have you made any conscious effort to show these shades of grey and make them more sensitive or or aware, uh, or just juxtaposing two two things and and leaving it to the viewer? You know, honestly, I I do not think conflict has two sides. First of all. And therefore, this mm. binary uh, is a false binary that is being produced. As it, oh, it's being produced is what you're claiming. Yeah, I, I, I do not see two sides. I, I, I see, I see one large mess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to produce binaries is actually. It's a strategic move. I don't think it is an inherent, it is not inherent in how the world is. Even something like gender, we can take clue from there. We have been told for millennia that gender is binary, that there is one male and there's one female. To think that all along that narrative worked in someone's favor and we had to believe it. Today, if we say 
that gender is a spectrum. You may be 20% something, 80% something else. Mm. But, but violence will occur at the sake of just acknowledging that this is a spectrum and this is not a binary. It's a falsely produced binary. And so we see it in something that's, that is so fundamental as gender, then we obviously see it in, in our electoral politics. And they use it. Everybody in electoral politics uses this, if you are not with me, you're with them. Hmm. So, so at the conflictorium, I think this question of binary doesn't arise. There is no question of binary. It is. It is quite. Uh, there are no two sides. Yeah, when I say two sides, is that there's something happened because of some, uh, yeah, some circumstances. I would say, uh, or or certain narratives maybe, and now to new like, I don't know, like it's it's maybe it's like too much of conditioning of uh, being in binary is is where I'm coming from. That's why there is this, do you neutralize it? So we'll anyways conclude uh, with one last question. Uh, I mean, I'm sure one must come and visit the place to really experience it. Um, Like, and again, uh, the point where I started was I did Vipassana and one of the Buddha saying is that peace is generally an outcome. If you, if you can stay with the conflict, if you can stay with that, that momentarily conflict and while conflictorium engages in dialogue and and like a lot of talking right uh you you be comfortable with what your history is what your present is uh so how do you see the future of it like will peace manifest and i'm sure it's cyclical so so things will change again but what's what sort of in the corporate world, mission vision is is peace possible? Is or are you even looking for a peace because you don't have binaries? Then, yeah, I mean, what's what's the future like? <laughs> well, an ideal future is where we will not need the conflictorium. Hmm. Hmm. That's it. That's the ideal ideal case scenario. Um, but but peace is not is not viable without justice. And uh, that is a long road. And it's a, it's a difficult road to walk on. So, of course, there's uncomfortable peace um, that is maintained in our worlds. Um, meaning Buddha's peace is is in a transformative world, in a transformed world, which means mm. um, how do we how do we arrive at social transformation without justice? We can't. Uh, then it's a whitewash. Um, so maybe justice is is the future, and and peace <laughs> in the farther afterlives. <laughs> Hmm. Hmm. Got it. Yeah, I think a um, lot of lot of food for thought here, and lot of uh, what I can say is that 
I, I, I think actually one should just be with that conflict and, and visit the space to understand what's what's uh, brewing there. <laughs> I was saying like, I mean, there's lots of food for thought here and lots of, uh, there are no, as, as conflicted and also, I'm hoping that stripes for is that there are no solutions you'll you'll figure out you'll move along you will uh, you'll you'll yeah adjust and adapt and uh, and and figure out the way for the future but uh, I think it would be best to come and visit and have a much longer conversation in person but thanks a lot for giving your time it was great to have you uh, and uh, it was yeah as I said, a lot of, lot of things to ponder upon. Thank you for actually opening this space up. Um, and maybe an hour is just about scratching a surface. But I hope everybody who's listening in also um, somehow finds their way to the conflictorium, either in Ahmedabad or in Raipur, Chhattisgarh. Either one. Okay. okay. Great, great. Okay, thank you. Thanks. And that's it from today's Gyan session. For show notes and more Gyan, visit audiogan.com. And if you wish to connect with me, I am at audiogan moments on Instagram. Until then, take care.